Three months of the Red Sea Crisis, US cyber fears over Chinese-made port cranes, and the Magna Carta of the seafaring kind. Hi, it's Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News here, with our February News Roundup Maritime in Minutes, and I'm joined by our correspondent, Gary Howard. We always seem to start out these episodes by saying how busy it's been. We really are not just saying it, it's actually true. I left Gary to hold the fort during the Chinese New Year public holiday in Singapore. In the space of just 24 hours, we had a Greek ship owner being shot dead, another ship owner dying in a car crash, and a Houthi missile strike on a bulker in the Red Sea. Now, since Gary clearly has lots to talk about, I'm going to hand over to him to kick off for this look back at February in maritime and shipping. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, and before we jump in, I'm not a superstitious man, but I do also remember covering for you in 2021 on a week a little little digger and a container ship named the Ever Given became suddenly very famous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to do this, honestly. Uh, Right, back to 2024, though. My first pick is what I read as an encouraging signal from the EU when it comes to maritime decarbonisation and alternative fuels. A European Commission proposed text on its plans to reach its 2040 emissions reduction target of 90%. This set out a policy giving the maritime industry priority access to low and zero emissions fuels. The text is a sort of recognition of how difficult it is to abate emissions from shipping and the easier path that land-based industries have to solutions like electrification, for instance. You can't just string loads of wires across the seas. As journalists, I think we've both read our fair share of press releases about alternative fuels, most of which have this great unknown hanging over them of just how much of the fuel will be produced in the future and how much of it we'll be able to get for ships. Related to that, competition for fuel will play a role in both setting the price And if this sets a precedent of getting green fuels into bunker tanks, then that could prove a real positive for the industry. EXA, the European Community Shipowners Association, welcomed the text and said it looked forward to working with the Commission to translate the words into immediate action. We'll keep an eye on this as it disappears into the bureaucracy of the EU and update you as things progress. Marcus. Yeah, I'm staying in Europe with one of the most reported on companies in shipping, Maersk. Maersk's financial results are always watched closely Its Q4 and full year 2023 announcement revealed a couple of key points. Firstly, that post-pandemic earnings were not very good, and for the fourth quarter of 2023, it fell into the red to the tune of a $537 million ABIT loss. 2024 doesn't look a whole lot better, with the optimistic end of the Danish carrier's full year guidance being a break-even, so they're basically not expecting to make any money in 2024. Second was its logistics ambitions to be a global integrator for ocean freight, and they still have a long way to go. Maersk embarked on this strategy in 2016. Despite investing billions and billions of dollars in acquisitions in recent years, in 2023, the logistics business still only accounted for 27% of revenues. Getting to the scale it is aiming for clearly can't be achieved organically, at least not in the time frame they're looking at, and therefore the investment has to be on another level entirely. And this sort of brings in Deutsche Bahn, which has put on the block one of the world's largest logistics and forwarding companies, DB Schenker, and it was little surprise that this came up in Merce results call. The company has previously denied interest, but appears to have changed its tune somewhat. CEO Vincent Clerk said that DB Schenker coming onto the market, it was something that Merck needs to look into, 
although it was definitely not do or die, to quote. He noted the sale would change the landscape and logistics depending on who does the deal. Some of those interested that I've seen reported include DHL, Kunan Nagel, rival container line MSC, and Saudi sovereign wealth funds. It would be a massive investment though, with a deal expected to be in the 15 to 20 billion euro range if it does go through. It remains to be seen if Merce does bid, let alone is successful, but an acquisition such as DB Schenker would give it the scale that Merce Global Logistics ambitions need. I did almost pick up on Merce for their report that they were cutting Switzer loose as well, either on the same day or the day after. So that's still coming up, I think on the 22nd of March. They're looking to sign their demerger documents to let Switzer go its own way. Yeah, which will really leave them very much as this sort of pure container play ports logistics company, won't it? Exactly, yeah. Let's see how that plays out for them. And I'll pass over to you for the second week of the month. A great article for week two from our container man Nick Savides, who wrote on the impact of the Red Sea crisis on the chartering of feeder vessels. Container lines have signed short-term charters for feeder vessels as their networks adjust to meet demand, especially in the Mediterranean, while tonnage avoids the Suez Canal and the Red Sea for obvious reasons. Hapag Lloyd confirmed to Nick the Red Sea rerouting was behind its own charters as it prepared for medium-term disruption. And Jonathan Roach at Braemar explained that the focus on the feeder market was partly due to the lack of larger vessels available, so less room for the container lines there to shuffle things around. Nick also picked up on a looming problem for the feeder market, specifically a tonnage crunch coming as smaller vessels continue to age and not be replaced. There simply aren't many on order. Shortage could be on the way around 2027. There's a limit to the scope for feeder vessels being replaced with medium-sized vessels as well. Check out the story Charted Feeders de Rigueur in the Red Sea Crisis for more information on that. Marcus, I understand you're on the other side of the world looking at another canal in week two. Indeed I am, and it's something that's been kind of overshadowed, I guess, by the Red Sea Crisis, and that's the water problems that have been experienced by the Panama Canal. Now, while the Panama Canal Authority managed to avoid a plan to reduce daily transit to just 18 earlier in February, restrictions remain in force due to low water levels. There are draft restrictions which impact the largest Neopanamax vessels in terms of cargo load, and daily transits are limited to 24 compared to 36 to 40 in normal conditions. And there's no expectations of a swift return to normality. The current restrictions will now remain in place until at least April, when the authorities plan to assess the situation after the end of the dry season. It was a failure of the rainy season last year that kick-started the phasing in of gradually sharper restrictions, so any repeat of the low rainfall in 2023 this year would mean likely there will be no lifting of current measures, and who knows, maybe they would become even more strict measures. Meanwhile, despite slightly lower cargo volumes, a new tariff structure meant that the Panama Canal Authority reported a 14.9% increase in revenues for the financial year 2023, and it expects a further 2.7% revenue growth in the financial year 2024. We are sure shipowners and operators will be delighted by this news. If you're enjoying the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice. 
getting into week three. This is February 19th to 23rd, which some of you all know includes the PI renewals deadline. I've sidestepped this this year as the stories were all pretty broadly positive, but there is a story on Sea Trade Maritime News from Paul Bartlett if you want to pick that one up. Instead, I've gone for Rotterdam's reflection on its 2023 performance. We write a lot every day about the factors that impact shipping, and the immediate impacts are not often clear. But the annual port figures serve as a reminder of what really moved the needle in terms of trade. Rotterdam is still feeling the effects of the curbing of trade between Europe and Russia, as you'd expect, and it expects that 2024 will be another unpredictable year. The port pitched last year as one of investment and working on its sustainability efforts but the throughput figure showed a steep drop in coal through Europe let its coal-fired power stations cool down again. Economic headwinds in Europe also reduced manufacturing output and consumer demand, dragging container throughput down by around 7%, both in tonnage terms and TEU terms. There were a couple of bright spots. LNG was one of those, and a bad year for Europe's farmers meant there was higher demand for imported corn or maize, depending which you want to call it. But the headline figure was still an overall drop of 6.1% in throughput across the port of Rotterdam. It may be the nerd in me, but I like these uh, hard data stories and looking at how the trade flows have moved. So expect more of these sorts of stories, so long as Marcus lets me write them. Marcus? No, I mean, definitely. I think there's a lot of interest in these sort of data stories and how they impact business and how a major port like that is obviously going to is the impact across a lot of different businesses. I'm going to come back to the Red Sea. And as unwanted anniversaries go, Monday the 19th of February has to be pretty high up the list. The 19th of February marked three months since Houthi rebels in Yemen hijacked the car carrier Galaxy Leader. The ship and its crew of 25 continue to be held by the Houthis, and marking the three-month anniversary, some 29 different shipping organisations came together to call for the immediate release of the seafarers held on board, who they described as innocent victims of the ongoing aggression against the world of shipping. The hijacking of the Galaxy Leader marked the start of attacks on commercial shipping by Houthis claiming to target Israeli-linked vessels in retaliation for the war in Gaza. As time wore on, missile and drone attacks against over 50 vessels would appear to have become largely indiscriminate. Around 80% of the container trade through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal has diverted via the much longer route around the Cape of Good Hope, and tankers and bulkers are increasingly following suit. We also reported on the 19th of February that seafarers on over 10,000 ships covered by the International Bargaining Forum agreements have the right to refuse to transit the high-risk zone in the Southern Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Stephen Cotton, General Secretary of the International Transport Workers' Union, told Seatrade Maritime News they recognised that many of the companies that had signed these agreements had already made what they considered to be the right decision to sail via the Cape of Good Hope. Meanwhile, attacks on shipping in the Red Sea continue unabated despite naval escorts and intervention. And we have a dedicated page for that, the Red Sea crisis on Sea Trade Maritime News, and that's being updated pretty much every day. It's mad to think every few days we have a story about missiles or UAVs being flung at merchant ships and they don't make our roundup of the news stories because they are now so commonplace. But yeah, you're right, we're updating that page constantly, and this is still very much a problem for our industry. Indeed.
moving into my last pick for February, and it's a fun bit of geopolitics in the last few days of February as the Biden administration in the US issued an executive order aimed at security concerns over US port equipment manufactured in China. Expect a security directive from the US Coast Guard to address these apparent vulnerabilities identified by the Department of Homeland Security. Owners and operators of the cranes will need to take steps to secure both IT and OT systems and take, quote, a series of actions on the cranes. Seems vague, but I'm sure we'll be very specific. The administration said it will rebuild industrial capacity in the US to manufacture cranes with trusted partners investing over $20 billion in US port infrastructure over the next five years. A US subsidiary of Mitsui announced that it will be taking its manufacturing capabilities back into the US with trusted partners for the first time in 30 years. Whether this is regulators sort of finally getting around to the maritime sector after the the high profile tech protectionism, I think came around at about 2020, but was brewing for a long time before um, when Huawei and other Chinese telecoms companies were sanctioned out of US telecoms, or just a sign of an increasing chill between uh, Washington and Beijing remains to be seen. Let's hope for the port operator's sake that the uh, price difference between cranes built in the US and China isn't quite as wide as it is for Chinese and Jones Act ships. Right, that's my last pick. And now Marcus is taking our February 2024 news roundup back to 1215 and the signing of the Magna Carta. Yeah, I am, sort of, but it's not that Magna Carta. It's um, a much more recent one, which hasn't actually quite been signed yet. As the world's largest supplier of seafarers to the international shipping fleet, the Philippines has long struggled with issues around quality of training and certification of its seafarers, particularly when it comes to the European Union, which had threatened to ban European officers from the EU flag fleet for over a decade. Current Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., or Bong Bong as he's also known, has taken leadership in trying to sort out these issues once and for all, and he's engaged directly with the industry, the likes of the ICS and the European authorities, to a considerable degree of success as well. Now, there's also an act called the Magna Carta of Filipino Seafarers, and this bill includes standards on training and was certified as urgent by President Marcos Jr. last September and was due to be signed into law on the 26th of February. On Monday the 26th of February morning, I sat down to watch the live stream of this event, along with the signing of a couple of other bills. Well, that's what the title said, anyway. The only thing was, there was absolutely no mention whatsoever of the Magna Carta of Filipino seafarers. Its signing was pulled at the very last moment. So last moment that press who were present at the event apparently had press kits that included the signing, and a couple of local news outlets therefore even managed to report it had actually happened. Later in the day, um, the Magna Carta of Filipino seafarers was described as still being under review and was then withdrawn by the House of Representatives over reported jurisdiction issues. The bill has actually received strong opposition domestically and it would require significant investment by many maritime training academies in the Philippines. I'm not talking about the ones here that are run by the leading global ship managers and the top crewing agencies like MagSaisai and PTC that we talk to and appear at our conferences, but there's a large number of others that churn out a large portion of some 30,000 graduates a year, and of these only about 20% will ever serve on board a ship. It's a lucrative, if perhaps somewhat pointless business. Successive Philippines presidents have struggled to reform the sector, which would appear to have a strong political lobby. 
will President Marcos Jr. be successful? Clearly it's something he sees as that is critically important, and we'll be watching to see if the Magna Carta of Filipino Seafarers really does make it into law. If you want to learn more about this and any of the other stories featured in this episode, there are links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to joining you on the next episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast.